All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In our first two recordings, we simply set kind of the background and set the stage for the gospel by looking at kind of the backstory and how the gospel came into existence, as well as an overview to kind of give us a big picture and a map for reading the gospel well. So in this recording, we are going to begin the actual text of Mark's gospel. We'll look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And Mark opens his gospel with no preliminaries. There's no genealogy as in Matthew. There's no birth story as we get in both Matthew and Luke. He just jumps right in at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with the baptism of John the Baptist. This is how Mark opens his gospel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just a few things to note from just that opening line. The first is the word gospel. The word gospel is not exclusively or even primarily a religious word. At least that was the case originally. Its basic meaning is good news, and it was often used of good news, say, of battles won, or good news of victory in some other form, or good news about a king who had ascended to the throne. It actually often described royal proclamations, things the king or the emperor was going to do or had done, supposedly for the good of his empire and the people of his realm. And so that's the basic idea of the word gospel. Now, the way Mark uses it here in this opening phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way he uses it there is a not-so-subtle polemic against the Roman emperor Caesar and the Roman Empire and its propaganda. The reason I say that is because, uh, for example, there's an inscription that describes Caesar Augustus's birthday like this. It refers to Augustus as a god. It, it says, uh, the god Augustus, who was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, Luke chapter 2. And then it says that uh, his birth, Augustus's birth, was the beginning of the gospel for the world. Notice the echo that Mark has of that very same phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or for Augustus, the beginning of the gospel for the world. And in various places, Augustus was heralded for bringing peace and for being the savior of the world, and he was called the son of God. So Mark's opening line subversively insists that Jesus is in fact the son of God, not Augustus, that the news about Jesus is actually the true gospel, contrary to the Roman propaganda about Augustus. And this idea that Jesus is the true son of God and the true king Coming to his throne is in keeping with Old Testament promises fulfilled in Jesus. For example, Isaiah 52.7 says this, How delightful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, That's what Mark is saying. Mark is uh, by opening his gospel this way, he's saying, that's what I'm going to write to you. I'm announcing this good news that God reigns, that God's king has come and has ascended to the throne. And so Mark's gospel is the announcement of God's king and what God's king has accomplished for the world. So his gospel is his report of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. And 
the both the word Christ and the phrase Son of God are royal titles. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one. It's what would happen to a king. He'd be anointed as king. And so he's the king. And Son of God is noted uh, just a moment ago, Caesar Augustus took that title for himself. And in the Old Testament, the title Son of God actually derives from the covenant God made with David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 7, that a descendant of David's would sit on his throne over God's people forever and ever. And God would be his father and he would be God's son. Well, obviously that dynasty was broken when uh, Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity. Nevertheless, God was faithful to his promise, and now he has brought the ultimate and final heir to David's throne, the Son of God, Jesus himself. So Mark opens his book by announcing that he's writing about God's anointed king, Jesus. And then he continues in verse 2 uh, by quoting from Malachi and Isaiah, a quote about preparing the way for the king. Listen to these words from Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This quote, that actually this combination of quotes that Mark puts here, uh, as he opens up his gospel, paints the picture of a royal herald being sent out to get the people ready for the coming visit of the king. The first part of the quote is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the second part, the part in verse 3, is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And Mark just says it's from Isaiah, probably because Isaiah is the more major prophet and the more prominent prophet. But in both Malachi and Isaiah, it's clear that this herald is preparing the way of the Lord, and the Lord is actually Yahweh. Um, he's preparing the way for Yahweh to return. And this is part of the Old Testament promise that God would return to his people and he would lead them and he would care for them. That's what the, the prophets regularly announced. And so this uh, combination of quotes from Malachi and Isaiah is Mark's way of saying that's what's happening. This big moment that we've been waiting for in history where God's going to return to his people, where he's coming to as assume his kingship and inaugurate his kingdom. Well, it's happening and it's happening in and through Jesus. That's what Mark means by quoting this here. Jesus is the coming of the Lord to his people. Mark goes on then in verse 4 and connects this quote to the ministry of John the Baptist who preached in the wilderness and called people to repent. This is how they can prepare for the coming of the Lord. So Mark chapter 1 verse 4 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just note when it says John the Baptist, we're not talking about the modern denomination, obviously. Actually, the word Baptist is a participle, and it describes how John appeared. He appeared in the wilderness baptizing. And the word baptizing technically actually isn't a translation of the Greek word. It's a transliteration, which means it's just taking the Greek word and writing it in English letters. The Greek word for baptism or baptize is baptizo. And so 
what happened in the early English translations was they simply took the Greek letters and replaced them with English letters. So here's what the word, if it had been translated, means. The Greek word baptizo means to dip or to immerse, or to submerge. So, John appeared submerging people in water, or dunking people, or dipping people in water. That's how he appeared. That's who he is. That's what he's doing. He's John, the one baptizing people. And he appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, his baptizing of people embodied their repentance back towards God, and it embodied God's forgiveness of them as they prepared for the return of Yahweh to his people. And John's ministry was having a huge impact. That's the point of verse 5. Notice what it says. It says, all the country of Judea was going out to him. Judea is the region around Jerusalem. And so the entire region around Jerusalem is going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, the Jordan River is really the eastern border of the region of Judea to the east of Jerusalem. And so John's out there in kind of the desert of Judea, the wilderness of Judea, baptizing people in the Jordan River. And, and notice that Mark says, all the country of Judea, all the people of Jerusalem. Granted, he's overstating it, but he's doing so to make a point. He's emphasizing the impact John was having. Uh, all the people were coming out to him. He's having a huge impact. And then Mark says something interesting. He actually notes what John wore. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Locusts were their large grasshopper-type uh, insects and wild honey. So he's eating bugs and honey. But what's fascinating here is the description of his clothes. We typically don't get descriptions of a person's appearance in the Bible. So when we do, that fact is significant. And that means John's clothing here is significant. Why does Mark note this? Well, most likely he notes it to connect John to Elijah. And remember, Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah came. In fact, the disciples asked Jesus about this in Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. And Jesus' answer indicates that John the Baptist fulfilled the promise of the one like Elijah who was supposed to come. So how does his clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt connect him to Elijah? Well, it does so like this. 2 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah in this way. And they said to him, describing Elijah, some people describing Elijah here, he was a hairy man with a leather belt worn around his waist. Now, the phrase hairy man is probably better translated in the, from the Hebrew as wearing a hairy garment. It just says he was hairy with a leather belt. It's awkward to translate it as a hairy man. That's probably possible, but most likely it describes his garment as a garment of hair. So by noting this, Mark is connecting John to the Jewish expectation of Elijah's arrival. And Mark goes on in verse 7 saying this, And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps 
of his sandals. So John identifies himself as the forerunner. He knows he's not the ultimate fulfillment of it. He's the herald. He's the one out there in the wilderness getting people ready. He's the one uh, that's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so he's the forerunner. He also says that he's not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. That means to remove them. And this was viewed as a lowly act fit only for a slave. In fact, disciples were told to do anything their rabbi asked of them except one thing. Take off the sandals of the rabbi because that task is so low, only slaves should do that. Well, John sees that the one who's coming after him is so much greater than himself that John is even too small to take off his sandals. Like, I'm not even great enough to take off his sandals as lowly as that act is. And so he's the forerunner. Somebody mightier than him is coming after him. And verse 8 says, John says this, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John points out that the Messiah who comes after him has a greater baptism, not merely in water, but also with the Holy Spirit. To John's original hearers, before Pentecost and before the Spirit would be poured out, right? You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. This would have triggered all of the Old Testament promises about the coming of the Spirit. The Old Testament prophets prophesied that when Messiah came, he would bring with him the Holy Spirit and he would pour it out on his people. So the days of the Messiah were also going to be the days of the Spirit. And so when John first announces this to his original hearers there waiting for the Messiah, this would signal to them that the long-awaited new exodus was about to come. That the new era when Messiah and Spirit were going to come was now arriving. For Mark's original readers, both then in the first century and today, us, right, for Mark's readers, we look back to Pentecost and we see how the Holy Spirit was poured out in fulfillment of these promises. And we now know and we see and we experience the Spirit who has been poured out on God's people in Christ. Then, from that announcement scene, that little snapshot of John the Baptist at work baptizing in the wilderness, from there, Mark cuts to a scene of Jesus' baptism. He's the one who's to come. He's the one whose sandals John isn't worthy to take off. And he comes to be baptized by John. Verse 9 says, In those days when John's out there in the wilderness, all the people are coming to him. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So John is out uh, along the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, east of Jerusalem, and that would be south of Galilee, south of Nazareth. And Jesus now travels from Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, uh, to the south, to the Jordan River where John is, and Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately as he's coming up out of the water, so he's been submerged down in the water, John is picking him up out of the water. And as that is happening, Mark says, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Here we get the first of 42 immediately in Mark's gospel. Remember, we said Mark likes to present this as a uh, kind of an action-packed 
gospel, right? And so he uses the word immediately over and over again. Well, here in verse 10, we get the first of those. And frequently, Mark uses this as a way of transitioning from one scene to a new scene to communicate this quick pace. The time has come. Things are moving forward. So we cut from the snapshot about John the Baptist ministry to this new scene where Jesus comes to be baptized. He's dipped in the water. He's pulled out of the water. And immediately as he's coming out of the water, here's what happens. The Spirit descends upon him. Jesus saw the heavens opening, more literally ripping open or tearing open, like with some force. And in some way, the Spirit descended apparently in the form of a dove, though it's not clear exactly in what sense. Was this like a physical thing or was it just a vision that Jesus was having? But he sees the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Now, whether there's any significance to the symbolism of a dove is actually a matter of debate among scholars. In fact, one scholar lists 16 different views. Some see it as connected, for example, to Genesis chapter 1 and the Spirit hovering over the waters at creation and thus signaling the beginnings of a new creation. Maybe others connect it with the dove after Noah's flood and the idea of we're restoring things and we're keeping God's promises. Maybe. The, whole, the fact is, it's uncertain. When there's that many views, it's not certainly clear that we're echoing anything in the Old Testament. Whatever it is, the main thing is, is that the Spirit is descending upon Jesus, and that's important. Isaiah had promised that when the Messiah came, he would be anointed with the Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is a promise of the king. Jesse was David's dad, and so this is a branch coming out of the root of Jesse, and this is a promise of the Messiah. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here, Jesus, anointed by the spirit in the form of a dove, is empowered for his ministry. That's the point of the spirit anointing Jesus at this point in his baptism. Then God speaks from heaven, declaring to Jesus who he is. And he does so echoing words and phrases and themes from the Old Testament. Verse 11, And a voice came from the heavens, saying to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Uh, this echoes, for example, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a an enthronement psalm for the Davidic king. When the king was going to be enthroned, Psalm 2 celebrates that. Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. And Jesus is the Son of God in a much deeper sense than just the adopted Son who's going to be king over God's people. He's the Son of God truly and fully. So what the kings were sort of in a a little way, and what they pointed to in a greater way, Jesus is. Jesus is that greater way. And the phrase, with you I am well pleased, well, that echoes Isaiah 42.1, which was spoken to the servant of the Lord, which we learn as you keep reading the servant Psalms. Well, it's Israel, but it's not just Israel. It's like Israel, then it's an individual. It's the Messiah. And so uh, Jesus is God's anointed son, and God is pleased with him. He's God's anointed king. And so these words echoing these themes assure Jesus of who he is as he now begins his ministry.
Then Mark briefly mentions the wilderness testing that follows right out of his baptism. And so verses 12 and 13 says this, And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. So the Spirit leads him out into the desert, out into the wilderness. He's baptized in the Jordan River, in the wilderness of Judea. And so now the Spirit leads him out into that very wilderness, that barren area. Um, And he's there in the wilderness, verse 13, for 40 days. We know from the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that he's in the wilderness and he's fasting for those 40 days. Mark doesn't mention that. He just gives a quick summary of this. Um, So he's there in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. And so like Israel, after going through the Red Sea, entered into the wilderness and there they were tested in their loyalty to God and failed the test. Well, now Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's led there actually by the Spirit and he's going to be tested. And guess what? He succeeds in the wilderness where Israel had failed in the wilderness. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, who recount in detail the temptations that happened there, Mark just summarizes it briefly and quickly. And he notes that the Spirit is the one who led him out into the wilderness. He also notes that he was tended to by the angels during this time. In some sort of way, they were ministering to him and strengthening him and serving him. And he was tempted and tested by Satan. The word tempted also means tested. So he's tested. Uh, in his loyalty to God, by Satan. Indeed, in fact, uh, the wilderness was viewed as the haunt of demons in their thought world. And so Jesus is out there in the wilderness. Angels are serving him and protecting him. Uh, Satan and his minions are testing him, and he's there for 40 days. And that's how Mark opens his gospel. If you want to think of that as a prologue, you can. If you want to think that it's simply an introduction, you can. But this is the way Mark opens his gospel. So let's just offer a couple of reflections before we wrap up this section. The first is this, that the center of the gospel is Jesus. It's the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, So the center of the gospel is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished and what that means. And what Mark tells us is in this opening uh, section to his gospel is that Jesus is the king who was promised, that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, returning to his people. So often in our day and age, we turn the gospel into something like a plan of salvation, and thus we almost implicitly make it about us and our sin and our need. And those things certainly are important, but when it's about a plan of salvation, that has more to do with the results of and then our response to the gospel than the gospel itself. Fundamentally, the gospel is news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the New Testament, it's the good news that the one true God is rescuing the world through King Jesus. And so some of the components of the gospel are things like Jesus is king. Jesus was crowned king when he died on the cross for our sins. God vindicated him and demonstrated that he was enthroned as king by raising him from the dead. And so now Jesus reigns as the supreme ruler of the world, and he's calling all people to repent and submit to his kingship and to follow him. 
That's the gospel. That's what the gospel means. Another reflection to offer here on this section is that the gospel is the culmination of the biblical story. Mark quotes here a handful of Old Testament texts, and he alludes to some other texts, all because the story of Jesus, the gospel story, is the culmination of the entire Old Testament story. The arrival of John is really the story moving forward into a new phase. And then the coming of Jesus to be baptized is uh, uh, even another phase. The age of promise but that was the Old Testament age, the age of promise is now turning to the age of fulfillment. The king is here and he is coming. And this is really the culmination of the entire biblical story. And we need to learn to read the Bible that way so that when we pick up in a gospel like Mark, we recognize it's like turning on a movie 70% of the way through the movie. And so we're at the culmination of the story. All the stuff we've been waiting for and looking forward to and all the hopes and dreams and needs and fears of mankind now are reaching their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. That is what the gospel ultimately is all about.